1: And now we're in the position where we have to answer the questions, well, now what should the Biden administration do? We're down a cul-de-sac, and we're faced with terrible and really terrible choices, and so now i got to bail them out.
0: I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. Rick Grinnell. Former US ambassador to Germany and former acting director of national intelligence under former President Donald Trump. Okay, that's a lot of formers. I've known Grinnell for years, during most of which he toiled in the vineyards of Republican foreign policy communications and occasional analysis as a media talking head. But Grinnell emerged from the Trump administration among the more well known gay Republicans nationally, in particular as a leading voice on Twitter and cable television defending Trump's claims that the 2020 election was stolen. So here's the thing. I could have spent three shows, maybe six shows, maybe more, talking to Grinnell about the usual topics. And I won't deny that the reporter in me wanted to do that. What about Trump doing this? What about your election claim that? All of that stuff. But you can get that anywhere, and it's just too predictable. So instead, Grinnell and I dove into foreign policy and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a few other things don't worry i asked him a couple of fun questions for instance does he have any plans to run for office himself and what does he think trump will do in 2024 and now rick Rinnell. and i'm joined by rick Renell. he is the former u.s ambassador to germany under president donald trump he is the former acting director of national intelligence under former president donald trump He is a longtime Republican foreign policy official analyst and policymaker. Rick, I've wanted to get you on Interim Shadow for quite a long time. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. But I got to tell you, David, that that you missed my favorite job in the entire administration, which is the uh, presidential envoy for Kosovo, Serbia.
0: Oh, my. Let's (laughs) see. I I couldn't even get it all. Uh, We'll see if we can get to that. It was my
1: favorite job. Good
0: to know. And we'll see if we can get to that. Listen, I wanted to ask you right out of the gate, and I want to cover a number of topics. um, So I'm going to bounce around here, hopefully make it fun for us. But I I wanted to ask you about Germany. Um, I don't want to, I I want your expertise here, but let me tell you my my view from the cheap seats, especially as a uh, now middle-aged man who was a child of the Cold War. Is that Germany for years has not always been very dependable when it comes to confronting adversaries of the West. Even in the Reagan years, and this I remember from being young, when the leadership in Germany got it, they had to dance around their own voters who were always very dovish, often very dovish. And I'm thinking in the days when there was such a thing as a West Germany and an East Germany. Uh, But after russia invaded ukraine and we will get to joe biden's place in all this in a minute but after russia invaded ukraine what i saw from germany was a backbone of sorts and even though it's not perfect germany backed by their own voters not just the chancellor not just the government but backed by their own voters said this is wrong And we need to do something about it. We need to stand up to Vladimir Putin. Am I reading this right? And was this surprising to you, having served in Germany as it was to me?
1: First of all, I have to say thank you for uh, the question, because honestly, I've done just a ton of interviews. And, you know, so many people just ask the same boring questions about, you know, oh, Joe Biden's weakness on the world stage and all that. To get into the details of Germany, I mean, this is an amazing uh, topic. I've been dying for somebody to ask me this. Um, There's so many angles to this, David, and you're correct that there was this slide in Germany. Um, I always push back though, and tell people to remember that the Germans had the largest military in Europe in the 90s, and all was fine, right? They were responsible. Because you have to be able to confront that, and that is one of the most potent arguments when you're in Germany, because as you correctly point out, the electorate is nervous. and there is this, you know, they call it their special history. And there is this um, uncomfortableness of having a large military, as if to say that having a large military is somehow reckless. And that's what I would always go back and say is, Make no mistake, you you had a very large um, military, the largest in Europe and everything was fine. And many Germans who don't wanna pay for these expensive programs and are enticed by the American government and American taxpayers who pay 50,000 troops when you count the rotational troops in Germany are Americans. And so why do they need to spend on military programs? That is a legitimate uh, thing. I, I've been in the presence of President Trump and Chancellor Merkel where President Trump would say, I don't blame you for not wanting to have a working military and to pay your NATO obligations. You've been able to just rely on the Americans. It's more shame on us for allowing this to happen. And so the, the Chancellor, Chancellor Merkel at the time, spent her money for 16 years on amazing roads and infrastructure in Germany. There's a, you know, a a symphony hall on every single corner in every minor city in Germany. They have the ability to spend on a lot of big programs outside of military, and they have a budget surplus. But I would say this, the German people have watched the 16-year slide of Merkel, and they're very uncomfortable with it. Now, they're the, they they threw out her party in this last election. Her finance minister, who was part of her government, a socialist um, named Olaf Scholz, is now the chancellor. I I got to know Olaf when I was there, and he of all the socialists that we could get, he's the best. And and he's he's a he's a good guy, and he completely flipped uh, the the policy to stop Nord Stream two and and to pay the NATO bill. And now you see President Steinmeier, who is uh, the president of Germany, and he was the president when um, Chancellor Merkel was there as well. He has now come forward and said, we made a grave mistake by pursuing this policy. We didn't listen. And to me, that was a real apology to President Trump. It was, they didn't wanna say President Trump was right and Rick Cornell was right, but they absolutely said it in different ways. And I think that they're listening to the other European partners. I'll finish with this. This is the problem that a lot of American journalists have is that they view Europe as simply what Paris and Berlin and Brussels says. And that is not true. I mean, the European parliament told the Germans not to pursue Nord Stream 2. Remember Nord Stream 1, we believe is part of the the energy uh, distribution in Europe that when you think about having diversification, um, having some Russian gas and energy is appropriate, but Nord Stream 2 went too far. The European Parliament said that multiple times and the Germans ignored them.
0: I'm joined by Rick Grinnell, former US ambassador to Germany, former uh, acting director of national intelligence under President Trump. Um, I was also pleasantly surprised, and I wanted to ask you this question in this way, um, by Europe, generally responding to Putin's aggression with some backbone and real opposition. Now, as you know, Europe is not as homogenous as, you know, Americans like to think, and we don't pay attention to international news as much as we should. In my opinion, sometimes I'm guilty of that. Obviously the Baltic States that are on the front lines with Russia, Poland, uh, they've got a different view. They have always been very aggressive and urged the Americans to be more aggressive. Um, it seemed it seems to me that that western europe uh who i would have expected to take a to tiptoe around putin after the invasion at least that's what i expected uh rhetorically and in some cases with action and policy um, responded rather forcefully such that uh the criticism that President Biden has gotten here at home, including from some Democrats, is that we're lagging behind the European response and that we need to be more out front. But I'm wondering, given that historically the U.S. tends to get its its ass in gear one way or the other, whether because we have a new president or the current president, you know, realizes that it's necessary or that there's political pressure to to, to get our, our, our rear end in gear. I'm wondering if it's been helpful for it to be so noticeable that in some ways, Europe is leading on this because the message to Putin potentially, but other aggressors around the world is, it's not necessarily just a confrontation with the United States, which you may relish, that you're going to get if you invade your neighbors. And if that is helpful... It doesn't excuse a lack of American leadership, but I'm wondering if this is just helpful to the overall cause that there's been so much attention on Europe leading.
1: So I guess I've, I've spent too much time there and and have a different um, sense because uh, I think there's a huge frustration in Europe that they waited way too long. And so there's not a celebration of like we're doing – you know, a lot of great things. I was on Twitter tweeting out this Belgian politician yesterday who uh, was really taking it to the Germans and saying, you currently are not doing enough on sanctions. You currently are still part of the problem. Now, you've got President Steinmeier apologizing. You've got the Germans saying we got to catch up. You've got the celebration that the Europeans are doing more. But I have to tell you, within Europe, the, the debate is the Germans are still the problem and they're not doing enough. Now, look, I'm not sure that we would be in this position if Chancellor Merkel. Merkel was still there. I don't think that she would have ever given up on this idea. And remember, too, that that she got rid of nuclear energy. She pronounced that they're going to get rid of coal and and really put them put herself in the German government and the German people in a box to have to rely on Nord Stream 2. Do because, and this is key, because Chancellor Merkel saw the rise of the Green Party in Germany and she didn't want to lose power. So she was triangulating their issues because every single time there was an election, the Greens were about to come up on her. There was a debate of whether or not the Greens would take over. And for Americans, you have to remember that the Green Party in Germany is not like AOC, the Green New Deal. The Green Party in Germany are large suburban women who are wealthy and really sick and tired of the quality of life issues for their kids. And so this is this is a powerful group. And now the Green Party in Germany runs the foreign ministry and the defense ministry. You think about that. The, the, the face of Germany on the outside is the Green Party and the Socialist Party who, who have the chancellorship. So I think that the debate is a little bit about the Europeans getting frustrated and, of course, Biden being way too weak and they have to do something because it's their neighborhood.
0: Is it helpful that we can talk about the Europeans wanting to be bolder in confronting Putin and when other adversaries, other adversaries of the West, like China, see this as not simply an American response, but in some cases, a European response that has been more aggressive than Washington's, even though... No question about it. And that's kind of what I was getting at. No no
1: question about it, because you have to remember that you know the Chinese are so... I spent eight years at the UN and uh, inside the Security Council dealing with the Russians and the Chinese, so I got to know their tactics really well. And the Chinese are fantastic at watching the situation and then going around the back door to manipulate everything and pretend like they're not part of that crisis they did it in iraq and afghanistan they've done it with iran and now they're doing it with ukraine and with the europeans um herein lies the problem for the germans right this belgian politician who was calling out the germans saying you're not doing enough on sanctions um this is the fundamental problem of the Germans is that they just want to have a foreign policy like Switzerland and they wanna sell cars to everybody. So they're in Beijing selling cars, they're in you know, Tehran and wherever they can sell cars, they wanna sell cars. And so in, in the Chinese see this, the European squeeze as you point out and they think, gosh, we certainly wouldn't want sanctions on us. So when the Europeans step up and, and begin to police their own neighborhood, um, allies doing more, which is an America first principle. Uh, I think it does send a very strong message to the Chinese that there would be a price to pay if you were publicly with the Russians too much.
0: OK, let's talk about a little bit about uh, President Biden's leadership on this. And let me just ask the question this way, because because I, I, I I've been interested to hear this from conservatives and Republicans uh, rather than rehashing the the past, which we could do endlessly. What else should President Biden and his administration, the things that they have in their control be doing now to counter Putin and Russia that they're not already doing?
1: Resigning.
0: Okay, he's not going to resign.
1: This is I, I know that people are frustrated about this. I've moved into the pissed off phase because now suddenly, you know, we had so much going right, and now we're in the position where we have to answer the questions. Well, now what should the Biden administration do? Well, we're down a cul-de-sac, and we're faced with terrible and really terrible choices. And so now I got to bail them out with picking one
0: of these. Well, you don't have to bail them out. Hold on here. First of all, look: if President Biden resigns, you get Vice President Harris. If she resigns, you get uh, you get Speaker Pelosi. And if she resigns uh, currently, I think you you get uh, Senator Patrick Leahy if the succession works. I I don't know that you want that. Look at it this way. Let's say it was 2025 right now and there was a change in administration and the Republican candidate won, whether it's Trump because he ran again or another Republican. What should the president do right now? that the president of the united states is not already doing and look you're free to say and they should stop doing this and and do this instead i'm i'm just looking i'm trying to get a sense of what's missing
1: it's such a difficult question what's missing is just plain reading of the tea leaves and and responding with strength and power i mean look i have to i know this is frustrating for people because they want us to say oh what would you do what we wouldn't be in this position, and so it's a really difficult, um, you know, conversation to have. Is what would you do? Um, I would have never been in this position to have to have these terrible choices. Uh, I wouldn't have, for instance, taken the the Houthis off the terrorist list, only to watch the Houthis start bombing the UAE which is a, you know, signatory uh, to, to the Abraham Accords, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of weakness. Uh, I, I wouldn't have had the Chinese lecturing me in Alaska. You know, all of these little things, the pullout in Afghanistan, all of these things led to this moment where, you know, Biden messed up three or four times. And I know we keep talking about this and everybody knows this, but, you know, in, in, a, in a world where, we didn't have an invasion by by Putin, right? To answer your question in, in the best way that I can, in 2025, I would make sure that we go back to all of the policies that sent a strong message to Putin where he calculated that he couldn't rewrite the borders of Europe under a strong presidency. And so there's probably 20 things that you're going to have to do Um, for one. You know, it's really frustrating to watch the Washington, uh, you know, official Washington completely change um, the the reason that Trump put forward the policy on open skies. For instance, there was this, oh, you know, President Trump is allowing um, us to not you know, have enough information and it's a gift to Russia. No, ab- when, when the Russians are misusing for decades, for, for a very long time, uh, the Open Skies Treaty to collect information and intelligence and, and do it illegally and not allow others to have the same sh- uh, exchange of information, that build up over seven or eight years multiple presidents allowing Russia to get away with this. When President Trump came in and put him on notice that we're going to kick you out of open skies, suddenly the attention was on their intelligence gathering and their abuse. And, and, you know, I think that made a big difference. I think that made a big difference when President Trump said, look, I don't want to fight with Putin, but I'm going to put sanctions on you and I don't want that pipeline. And so his, the whole demeanor, of how strength is portrayed uh, sends a a different message. And And I think that's what's missing is that there's 20 examples I could give you of weakness coming from the Biden team, including Jake Sullivan, who should be teaching, you know, in a junior college white paper analysis rather than being the national security advisor.
0: If Republicans win control of the Senate in November, which I think is likely at this point, and in fact, they will they are very likely to win control of the House. So you're going to at least be able to send bills to the president's desk. And I'm asking this question, by the way, for this reason, you know, in, um, in I believe it was in 2017. And I think you were still in Berlin at the time where you you were on your way there. Um, the Republican controlled Congress, with the help of Democrats, sent to President Trump a bill that um that constricted a little bit his ability to cut deals with Russia. Any deal with Putin and Russia was going to have to be approved by Congress. So there are times when Congress can get involved in foreign policy and try and hem in a president or encourage a president in one direction or another. Is there anything that a, a Republican Congress could do beginning next January that you would like to see them do to either uh, fence in President Biden or uh create strong incentives for him to act in particular ways on matters of foreign policy?
1: So first of all, we should say that Congress acted against President Trump back then because they were listening to the Russian collusion narrative and they believed it and they shouldn't have because it was all wrong. And so they were trying to put a check on the president because they believed that he needed to have a check when dealing with Russia. Um, I would say that we need more of President Trump's style because clearly who he is and his style um, made sure that we didn't have a war and I think Ukrainians are probably going to forever believe that and your Euro- Europeans are certainly going to forever believe that, that President Trump's style was really amazing and didn't need a check like what Washington uh, politicians think. I think Biden needs a check. I think that if the Republican Congress comes in, we need to figure out how to be stronger, as as an American government, so they're going to have to put a check on Biden because he's demonstrated that he's weak. I think that they should put pressure on Anthony Blinken to resign. I think uh, there's no question that he has been one of the worst and weakest secretaries of state that we've seen. Diplomacy has been shoved aside by the Biden administration. We immediately default to a Pentagon and troops on the ground and all of these military options. When we have amazing diplomats at the State Department who need to be encouraged and trained to go into danger posts so that they can avoid war, none of that is happening under Blinken. Um, I think also the Republican Congress is gonna have to just do some real practical things, David, like put on Biden's desk a a voter ID uh, demand. Um, I think we're going to have to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop. I think that we're going to have to push forward the four economic agreements that President Trump uh, negotiated between Kosovo and Serbia. The, those are some good news. I think the Republican Congress is going to have to push the Abram Accords, um, all of and the border, for instance. We need to build the wall. Obviously, the border is in chaos. And we've paid for it. We need to spend it and build it and implement it and, and be good stewards of, of the money that was, uh, that was directed. And so I, I think there's a lot that the Republicans can do. I'm under no illusion that, you know, President Biden is gonna sign any of that. But I do think that there's a power in getting someone to uh, say no and to showcase who the problem
0: is. You know, you discussed this idea of muscular diplomacy, and I'm, I'm, I'm segueing, but not exactly here, in your speech to the Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando a couple months ago. Um, and I was there for that. And I was curious because I think the knock on Biden is that he's too reliant on diplomacy, that there's no uh, credible option of military force to act as the teeth. That diplomacy often needs to work. And your critique, which I found to be a very interesting uh, critique, and you sort of referenced it here without, I think, meant saying so, is that he's not utilizing the State Department enough. He's not. And I think the term you used in your speech was, mus- you know, you, he's not taking advantage of and including in his repertoire this idea of muscular diplomacy to avoid military conflict. But the knock on him has always been and continues to be that he's weak And isn't willing to send a message to American adversaries, whether China vis a vis Taiwan or Putin vis a vis Ukraine, that there are certain lines you just don't cross or there's going to be hell to pay. So explain how this relates to Biden, a guy who's never been accused of being too quick to fire a gun.
1: Well, I think we're actually saying the same thing. Muscular diplomacy, uh, really innate in that, relies on the fact that if you're going to be sitting at a table diplomatically, that the threat, of, a, of, of a, a credible threat of military action is behind you, right? I've done thousands, tens of thousands of diplomatic uh, negotiations and meetings. And um, every single time you're there and you you have to be able to, when pushing the US policy, have a threat, a credible threat of military action, of sanctions, of something more than just an agreement. If we don't come to an agreement, then there are consequences. And so it's important for diplomats to work hand in hand with the Pentagon, because when when we have a portfolio, when we have a, a, a crisis, an issue, we at the State Department have to try to negotiate that peacefully away from war, explain the why it would be terrible to go to war. But if we fail, we transfer the file over to the Pentagon and they don't negotiate. So inherent in that conversation to be successful as a diplomat is a credible threat of military action. I would argue that what Biden has done is completely skip the diplomatic part and to send into kind of these weak, policies through the the Pentagon, oh, we're going to move troops around Ukraine, Uh, we don't want to escalate, so we're not going to send too much, Uh, they're they're really, I mean, you didn't see Anthony Blinken flying to Russia, flying to, uh, you know, Ukraine before the the bombs start dropping and doing any of this muscular diplomacy. You saw Turkey step up, you saw Estonia try to do something. You then saw Macron try to do something, you didn't see Anthony Blinken. And, and my point is, is that I think that the Biden team thought, well, we can't send in the State Department, they're too weak, so let's do what we always do, which is to do this kind of half thing with the Pentagon where we, we put troops on the borders or, or we look at you know talking tough, uh, if, if there's gonna be a red line crossed, um, but none of that really works because you you you're blending the two into one, you know, bland gray thing. And I think you've got to have black and white. You've got to first send in the, the diplomats. We're talking tough. And the Pentagon is waiting with a credible threat behind you. And that's like the one 2 punch. Uh, obviously they have to go hand in hand. And instead, we didn't do military action. We didn't give them you know, any military hardware that they really needed. And we didn't do diplomacy. We did kind of this gray thing in the middle with no consequences if, if there was a failure, because we took out the, the backstop, so to speak, that the diplomats usually use.
0: Okay. I'm going to go a totally different direction here. I mean, I could, I could talk about this for hours and I, I think people would send me hate mail because they don't like foreign policy as much (laughs) as us. Uh, I want to talk about you a little bit. You know, you've you and I have talked for years and anybody who's covered Republican politics and has to get into things like foreign policy and a presidential campaign. uh, We know who you are, but you've become, I think, much more of a known political figure. And what I've seen from you, although you often stay in your lane of expertise, is I've seen you branch out a little bit and become much more of a uh, political player on all sorts of issues and in a much more um, entertaining way on social media platforms, let's say, than, than I remember of you you know, 10 years ago, even five, six, seven years ago. Um, what's precipitated that and how do you look at the sort of role you play um, as a prominent Republican?
1: Look, I'm uh, I'm somebody who, who understands the game of politics. Right. Um, you know, when you cheer for the, the Dodgers, um, even in the ninth inning, when you're down, you don't switch sides and be like, oh, I, I hope the you know, Astros come really you know, win this in a big way. No, you, you go down in flames even when your team is not very good and you need to make some trades. Um, but I'm somebody who understands that game. So I'm I'm always going to be a Republican and I'm going to work hard to improve the Republican Party. I have largely stayed in my lane um, of foreign policy, but I think what bleeds into my lane is the media bias and the collapse of journalism. Because I've seen it, first of all, I, I rose through foreign policy on the media side as a spokesman, But then I've seen as a diplomat, um, you know, I've seen the intelligence that we would use in Germany, say, as the ambassador, um, and and that I've seen the interpretation of the leaks of intelligence. That's pretty frustrating. As acting director of national intelligence, I can tell you we've got a, a lot of amazing intelligence officers who are truly annoyed at the uh, partisan leakers. And make no mistake, they're there, they're loud, but they are few. And I always push our intelligence officers, career officials, to police themselves. They know who the leakers are, they need to out these people. The media, of course, love to just manipulate that. And you have, you know, Jim Sciutto for five weeks saying Kim Jong-un was brain dead. We knew he was wrong. We knew that that was misinformation, but, you know, we allowed him to hang himself on credibility because I thought it was really important to show people that a lot of these uh, raw intelligence leaks or manipulations are not to be believed, and and that's why we always talk about intelligence as an estimate. I would say it's a long answer to say my frustration of seeing the truth. Certainly, the Russian collusion. we you know, um, that hoax when I when I went in as acting DNI, I I said to my team on the very first day, bring me the entire Russia file. I want to see everything that our intelligence uh, world has, everything on Russia. And I spent four or five days reading everything. And I have to tell you, David, I was really sad. I wasn't angry, but I was really sad for our country to read the transcript. Susan Rice and Samantha Power and Jake Sullivan and all these people to read their transcripts under oath with their lawyer sitting next to them and then watching what they say on CNN and MSNBC. It was a sad day because they are blatant liars, and they did it for partisan purposes. And look, their transcripts are on the DNI website still. I encourage people, don't believe Rick Grinnell. Go out and look at the facts yourselves. Go watch what Susan Rice and and Samantha Power and Jake Sullivan and Adam Schiff, uh, what they said on television, and then go look at the transcripts and the proof. And you will see for yourself that Washington DC is this bubble of lies And then all of these reporters retweet, repeat, recycle all of this stuff and pretend like, you know, like it exists. So my frustration has only grown when I saw the truth and when I saw the total hypocrisy of Washington, D.C. types. And so now I think I've branched out into trying to educate people on really what the lies are in D.C., and, and I think that there's plenty of them. And I'll finish with this is, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of our Republican donors are activists and I speak around the country and I, and I, you know, help a lot of politicians running for office as conservatives, America first patriots. And when I speak to regular people, you know, I got to tell you, It's an education process to go speak to Republican activists, Republican donors and people on the front lines because they see this very clearly. They can't stand Washington, D.C. They think that everybody there is part of the problem. And so, you know, when I'm speaking to them, while it riles up Washington types and they attack me nonstop. I see the rest of the country celebrating it and responding positively to it. Uh, I really believe there is such a disconnect between Washington DC and the rest of the country that when you get out of Washington and you start talking to regular people, you see it. And, and then I'll finish with this. Regular people see that as a problem, but they're also not as partisan as the Washington types are. I have a lot of friends in California who vote for Democrats who are progressive, but who are my close friends and wonderful people people. And when we talk, we don't talk about, uh, you know, Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, our plans to go to the beach or their kids school or, you know, real issues that, that impact us on a daily basis.
0: Are you comfortable, uh, with the Republican party? Well, let me ask you this. Are you comfortable with politics in general? Um, and you don't strike me as somebody uncomfortable in the political arena. But to frame the question, are you comfortable with politics that seems increasingly consumed by cultural issues and less consumed by sort of academic policy issues? Right. A lot of our our professional lives, you and I, the big debates were on fiscal issues or foreign policy issues, um, and and things related to that. How big is government? How much should government be doing? Uh, Increasingly over the past uh, 10 years, much greater focus on cultural issues on both sides of the aisle, whether on uh, gay marriage or transgender issues, whether on whether abortion should be legal or illegal, how much uh, policies that govern public school curriculum is is this something that you find invigorating as someone in the arena or would you like to see the country sort of find some sort of modicum of agreement on this so it could get back to the the, the debates it, it, it used to have in recent years?
1: I think we've always had these debates. I think I, I have to reject the premise a little bit in that. Go ahead. We we we've always had these cultural debates. You go back to the 70s and 80s, and even the Reagan administration, uh, where there was a lot of discussion about some of these cultural issues. I think we've always had that. And there's always been a complaining of, oh, why can't we just get along and you know, work across the aisle? I will give you that it's gotten worse in the last five or six years, but i put the blame squarely on the, the Democratic Party that has moved away from having a discussion, Instead of being able to sit in a room and listen to the other side and then getting your turn to respond. Now we have a democratic party that that cancels people, that calls you a racist, sexist, or a homophobe. One of those three, everybody on the right is one of those three. So you gotta get really used to the fact that, that in today's world, when you discuss anything with someone on the other side, you are either racist sexist or homophobe. Those are just the labels. As soon as you can get really comfortable with being called names and want to push through in the discussion, you're going to do much better. Uh, what they rely on is is the the um, the shrinking of conservatives um, when when you label them as somebody who is you know misinformation or or you know racist homophobe. Um, What what I would like to do is to get back to the place where we're allowed to have real discussions without canceling the other side or or running out of the room with your fingers in your ears because you can't listen to the other side. I will say this. What's happened to our universities and now trickling down to our high schools is atrocious and it could bring down the United States because we have... The David Axelrods of the world are now running all of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics discussions. There's literally not a discussion going on. There is a whitewashing of the issues and we're pretending that there is just only one way to think and we're indoctrinating kids. When I went to college, even at a Christian college, um, we would hear all sorts of sides we would hear from atheists or uh, other religions and and then we would get to decide because our teachers were unafraid of what they felt the truth was. And, and so having a real discussion of different viewpoints was healthy. I remember my dad used to say to me constantly, like, just sit and listen and you might learn something. And so I was required after giving my opinion to sit and listen and wait my turn through the table and everybody got to discuss. That doesn't exist anymore. Now, if you have an opinion that someone doesn't like, you're a racist or you're a sexist or you're a homophobe. I put this squarely on the Democratic Party trying to do things like, you know, if you want an ID to vote, if you call for that, then you must be a racist because you're trying to get black people to not vote. That's not healthy for the public square. That is directly on them.
0: I'm talking to rick Ronell, uh, former top official in the trump administration all right rick i'm about to let you go but uh two questions one for you one for me uh you dabbled first first you you're the guest guests go first uh you dabbled or at least people encourage you to run for governor of california in the recall last year you ultimately decided against it uh but i wonder if that whole thought process got you thinking Aside from it being California, and I don't know how a Republican wins anything except in a, in a, a gerrymandered House seat. Um, <laughs> if you've thought about, which I don't even say pejoratively, I mean, at least we know who's responsible for a, a drawn seat. You don't like it, you can vote them out. That's my soapbox for the day. Um, have you given more thought about running for office uh, or you, you just you like the role you are in? And clearly there, there, you're a young man and there will be more Republican administrations that you can serve in.
1: Yeah. I don't see myself running for public office. Um, it's, it's just not, you know, something in me. I work really hard for people that do it, that step up. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I could say a whole bunch that would probably get me into trouble uh, of why That's I don't want to hear But, but um, I, I think the reality is that I respect the people that step up to do it because it's messy and it's, um, you know, it is public service, but it, it's certainly not, um, I think, something that I I seek or want.
0: Very good. And finally, uh, one for me, do you think at this point that President Trump is more likely, less likely or jump ball to run for president again in 2024?
1: I think he's running. This is Rick Rennell's opinion. I think he's absolutely running and uh,
0: he he should. Rick Rennell, former U.S. ambassador to Germany, former official at the United Nations for the United States, a former acting director of national intelligence under President Trump. And what was that? Your favorite job was? Presidential
1: envoy for Kosovo-Serbia negotiations.
0: We'll have to get into that okay. next time. Rick Rennell, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. David,
1: great, great segment. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, the battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.